Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 514 with Alec Torelli. Alec is a professional poker player who's got some pro tips on making wise decisions. He'll learn one, how to keep emotions from overtaking logic, two, when to go with your gut, and three, how to better read people and situations. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, it's at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep, as an EP514, or just tap it right in your podcast app player where it's called episode notes or description. Expand that and you can click there all the faster. Now here's Alec's story. Alec Torelli is a professional high stakes poker player turned digital entrepreneur and keynote speaker who shares how the lessons he learned from poker can be applied to life and business. Alec is the founder of Conscious Poker, a popular poker trading platform. And after spending the last 14 years making decisions for hundreds of thousands of dollars in a single hand, he now gives talks where he dissects the anatomy of decision-making to help others hone the way they make choices. So Alec is about to share some handy tools for making great decisions. Another handy tool to enhance your communications for optimal team decisions is Prezi. If you're bored with presenting and reading bland slide decks, Prezi can come to the rescue. Prezi is a software program that helps you make interactive, dynamic, and impactful presentations that engage audiences and get results. Prezi's give you a moving, zoomable canvas that helps you present with the flow of a conversation. You can freely move throughout the presentation, zooming in for details and context and zooming out to show the bigger picture. One university research study found that Prezi is 25% more effective, 22% more persuasive, and 16% more engaging than PowerPoint. Those are some tasty numbers. You can present from any internet-enabled device or use their desktop version if you're having a hard time getting some Wi-Fi or a cell phone signal to do your business that way. You could convert existing PowerPoint presentations with your converter and start zippily fast with their snazzy, easy-to-use templates. Spice up your presentations by trying Prezi free for two weeks at Prezi.com slash awesome. That's Prezi, spelled P-R-E-Z-I dot com slash awesome. Now, here's Alec. Alec, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Pete, I love what you're doing and flattered to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to really dig into some of your wisdom associated with decision-making and keeping your cool and and all that good stuff. But for starters, maybe you could regale us with an exciting tale from the land of professional poker. A specific story or? Yeah, just the most like riveting, like, whoa, that's awesome. (laughs) Oh my God. No pressure, Alec. (laughs) That's fine. So I've been playing for 15 years. It's interesting to pick out one thing that comes to mind, I guess, um, for me personally, I think the coolest story, the first one that comes to mind, um, I went to, so I was, I was 22 years old at the time. This was about a decade ago. And it was a Wednesday night. I was at my apartment in Las Vegas and I was, you know, 7, 8 PM, kind of like nothing going on. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to just head over to Bellagio and see what's going on and play whatever poker game is running. You know, clearly like a Wednesday night, not expecting anything to happen, um, go down with some money, show up and there's a game running with a $2,000 buy-in. So it's 10, 20 or the the blinds or the forced antes. It's a pretty 
um, normal size poker game, nothing out of the ordinary. So I show up and I have, I don't know, I bring ten or twenty thousand dollars to the table, um, which is you know allowing myself a few buy-ins to the game, not knowing what to expect. Playing for a couple hours, and the floor man comes over to me and says, "Hey, uh, Alec, I know you sometimes play higher stakes games, and there are three uh, businessmen that showed up with Doyle Brunson, who's like the godfather of poker." And they're looking for more people to play to start a poker game. They don't want to just start with four people. Do you or does anybody in this game want to play? So I'm like, sure, Matt, I would love to play. Um, But of course, I like I, you know, it's Wednesday night. I was completely unprepared. I'm sitting here with, you know, a small amount. They're they're playing some very high stakes poker game. And I don't have a, you know, money on me. And I'm not even sure I can afford to play this game. I have no idea. They might be playing for, you know, $100,000 to buy into the game. So I walk over to Bobby's room and he says, well, just go talk to Doyle. Um, and he's looking to play. So I walk in and I've, of course, Doyle's like my idol. I read his books growing up. I watched him on TV. So I, I walk into the, the Bobby's room and I'm like, uh, you know, Matt said the, the floor. I'm like, Matt said there was a game. Um, I'd love to play. I'm not sure that I have the money uh, or what size game are you playing? And Doyle's like, well, the buy-in is 50,000. I'm like, look, I only brought 20 with me. And I was up a couple thousand in the game. I'm like, I have maybe half of that. And Doyle looks at me, he's like, has no idea who I am. He's like, you look like you know what you're doing. How about I give you 25,000 and take half your action and we start a poker game? And I'm like, is this like, is this real? Like, am I in a movie? So I'm like, Mm -hmm. okay, sure. So I sit down. It's like, by this time, it's like eight or nine or 10 at night. I don't remember exactly. And, you know, now the, the VIPs, the, the businessmen, they're like ordering, you know, these crazy bottles of wine. They're ordering all this food and oysters. And we're like, so we're drinking wine. I'm talking, I'm sitting here talking to my childhood hero. We're telling stories. I end up winning like, it's, it's crazy you think I would remember, but I end up winning a large amount in the game. I don't remember how much. Um, and, you know, Doyle and I kind of hit it off at that, at that time clearly shared like a, a unique experience. And uh, when he went to go start his poker site, Doyle's Room, I, because of that interaction, I became uh, the first like sponsored pro of the site. Um, and so that wasn't like something that I'll always remember where like, you know, luck just, you know, luck is where <laughs> preparation meets opportunity. I had, you know, a good session in the game I won. I made a good impression, but I just was involved in a in a crazy serendipitous moment. And uh, that was one of the highlights of my poker career. Well, I'm so intrigued. So Doyle said, you seem like you know what you're doing. And I wonder, like, do you recognize you? Do you have prior information? Or I was just sort of wondering what kind of triggers that reaction or response? <laughs> well, if you're in your early 20s and you're in Bellagio at 9 p.m. on a Wednesday, with 20 grand, you're probably a professional poker player. Like there's not many things that you could be doing. And so um, it was like, he didn't know who I was for sure. Um, But you could kind of identify if someone is good or not based on how they look and come across. Like you can pick out, if you just look at a table and you've never seen anyone, you can typically tell if someone is very confident or, you know, if they're a professional or they're likely to be an amateur uh, or if they're a very experienced player. And I think he just kind of gathered that I was probably a professional poker player. There was a lot of young guns um, playing professional poker at the time. And so he figured I'm probably going to be a big favorite in the game, given that the, the other three people were 
not professionals, right. let's just say the least. <laughs> and so it was going to be a profitable investment. And also, frankly, I think the game wasn't going to start unless the you know there was more than the four of them sitting there. And so yeah. part of it is just um, being aware of what's going to kickstart the action and you know you can't make money if there's no game so he's like look this <laughs> I, I gotta do what i gotta do you know doyle's doyle's been around the block a few times so uh, it was just being in the right place at the right time and then i think having the image of look i clearly know what i'm doing um actually it's it's one of the few times that that it helps you i think poker players um you know most people don't want want to play with professionals because they don't want to be Right in a game where they're going to lose, but in this case, Doyle actually valued that I was a professional, and he got to, he figured, hey, look, this professional is going to sit in my game and you know be a favorite to win and make money. I might as well get a piece of the action. Yeah, adds up, makes sense. I love that the story's so meta there because you know we're talking about opportunities and decision making, and then even another poker player's decision making that made a lot of sense once we unpacked it a bit. So we've interviewed Annie Duke previously, uh, another professional poker player. Yeah, and uh, that was one of my faves. So we're gonna. Oh, I'm sure there's a poker term. Double up, <laughs> double down. Yeah, double down. That's more of a double, blackjack thank you. term. But um, she's awesome. I I like Annie a lot, and uh, she has a great book for those that are totally out there thinking in bets. Is highly recommended um, on my short list. So yeah, she's great. All right. Well, so then let's dig into it now. In your view, what do you think are some of the key principles of you know smart poker playing? that are absolutely applicable to professionals who look to be awesome at their jobs? One of them is decision-making in general and just being able to objectively make decisions without emotion and using a combination of logic and intuition to make good decisions and not make emotional ones. I think another one is separating the facts from the noise and focus on the merit of making good decisions and not being preoccupied by the outcome and not basing the quality of your decision based on the outcome, but based on the expectation that the decision will produce that outcome in the long term and understanding that in the short term or in an N1 sample, meaning a sample size of one, there is variance, meaning there is volatility. There are There's non-zero probability that you're going to have a different outcome because there's luck. So it's being able to step back from the results of the decision you make and evaluate the process of the decision. Um, And that's really what you're after in poker. And then I think another one is what poker players call bankroll management, which is um, shorthand for being able to manage your money in a way that allows you to properly evaluate your risk so that you can reach the long term and that luck is not the deciding factor in your success. And casinos do this as well, where they have betting limits per hand so that they manage their risk so that no one hand of blackjack, roulette, craps, whatever can sort of break the house. And they know that in the long run, the odds are in their favor, but they're mitigating their risk along the way so that no one hand is significant and they can reach that long term. Poker players practice the same thing using bankroll management to ensure that no one hand or one session or one tournament is significant in the grand scheme of things. Uh, So these are, I think, three of the core principles that poker has taught me and maybe maybe self-awareness is 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 another one to look at things objectively and um try and screen for your cognitive biases as well so those are some of the big ones 
Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, there's a lot of we can dig into and have some fun. Yeah, a lot to unpack there. I know. So let's talk about emotions. We have them. They're there. So I would love it if you could sort of first lay out in terms of, hey, when you're experiencing these kinds of emotions, you tend to make these sorts of mistakes and logic. For example, I believe I've heard and experienced in my life that if you're feeling stressed, rushed, too busy, we tend to prioritize the short-term immediate relief, you know, whether that's undisciplined eating pizza or totally just like hurried leave. They're just like, just get it done. I don't care what it costs, you know, fine. And we overspend on, um, you know, getting some help because we're really desperate and we need it. So I think that's one connection between emotions and suboptimal decisions that tends to pop up. What are some others and, and what do we do about that? Yeah, I think if you look at the types of decisions you can make fundamentally, I typically break them down into three categories. So logic or analytical, and this is, you know, well thought out pros and cons analytical type of decision making. Uh, Then there's intuitive decisions, which is trusting your read or feeling or gut instinct. And this sometimes gets confused with the third type of decisions, which are emotional. And those are the worst decisions we make, right? Impulsive, uh, frivolous, frantic types of decisions. So I think in poker, the challenge is to eliminate the emotional decisions and work with the other two. At the poker table, this is called tilt, meaning you make decisions when you're in a state of mind that is suboptimal and you're frustrated by the previous results or lack thereof, and you're trying to make compensate for that or make overly aggressive plays to win money in a short period of time. And this causes people to play poor hands, make bad decisions, bluff at the wrong times, chase when the odds are not in their favor, and ultimately in the long run, lose lots and lots of money. This is the ruin of many players. So otherwise good players um, sometimes can't win in the long term because they can't manage their emotions. So your talent is only one part of it. It's being able to execute consistently that is another part. And so poker really is is extremely punishing if you're not, you know, I would say great or excellent at this because it's it's unforgiving in the sense that unlike the real world, you don't have a lot of time to come back to calm yourself down or to step back from an emotional state of mind and make a rational decision later on. So for example, if you get a completely unwelcoming email or something like that, you can emotionally be charged, but you can decide not to respond to that in real time, right? You can make a rational decision later. But at the poker table, you know, every hand is dealt consecutively, like it's a continuum. So if you're not able to shift from an emotional charge from the last hand to completely, you know, present logical state of mind in the current hand, you're just going to get killed. So it really is unforgiving in that way. But I think one thing that's, that's helped me do that is to try and have a process that I go through every hand of poker I play kind of like a tennis player does in a sporting match. So if you watch them play from one point to another, there might be like really charged up after winning a point, or they might be really frustrated after hitting an easy volley into the net and they might be pissed or slam their racket. But the next point, inevitably they come back to the line and they have this little like meditation process they go through to get them ready for the next point mentally to serve the ball and play optimal tennis. And so I've tried to apply that same philosophy to my life in poker. And then it's through exercising that muscle 
then I've been able to translate that over into the real world as well. Um, and I could, I'm happy to share some, some concrete ways I do that too, if that, if that sounds interesting. Oh, yes, please. So now, this tennis in particular sounds familiar. Was there a book, The Inner Game of Tennis, that discussed this matter? Great book. Yeah, that's ringing a bell. I don't think I read it. Maybe I did the Blinkist summary. <laughs> yeah. Either way, it's a great book. Yeah, okay, understood. Timothy Galloway, 1997. Okay, so I recall from that book or something that that was a key differentiator between championship players and not-so-championship players was the ability to do exactly that. So... Let's hear, hey, in practice, if we want to do a quick reset when necessary, say, okay, I'm flustered, I got some feedback, which I thought was outrageous and unfair, or I feel offended, slighted, dissed, or just anxious, tired, unmotivated, don't feel like it. You know, there's some emotion that's there and we can sort of deal with it, process it, think about it, you know, work on it at some point. But for right now, Oh, uh, we got to reset and take care of business. How's one do that? Yeah. And I, I think you find this in personal life as well. You mentioned just like unmotivated being one of them, like just letting emotion come into your decision-making process in the morning, for example, just like deciding you don't want to exercise because you're unmotivated. So I think it, it, this plays out in a lot of facets of life. I'll kind of walk you through my process a little bit and then also go through how I have used that to navigate the real world. So, so bear with me here for a sec. In, in poker, it's just a little bit different because you're trying to, you're just like in a performance state. So it's a little bit more uh, contrived in the sense that, um, you know, a, a, a right away, I'm just trying to be like, okay, I only have 30 seconds between one hand and another. I have to reset right away. So first thing I do is just as sort of cliche as it sounds, just take a deep breath, right? So when you focus on your breath or you breathe, you automatically release stress. So that's just like the, the first thing to do. And I think it's just training that muscle that helps you just automatically respond in that way. Uh, and then I really am trying to release the charge of the previous hand and focus my process on what I can control. So a lot of times when we're in emotional uh, state of mind, especially in poker, there's a lot that's outside your control. Like, you you can't control what cards you're dealt, only how you play the hand. So I'm trying to bring the focus back to what I can control to feel empowered to make a good decision. So I say to myself, I'll tell myself something positive. I'll repeat something to myself, a command to myself as I'm, you know, close my eyes for a second, take a deep breath, and I'll say to myself, I, you know, I'm I'm present and focused at the poker table. I care only about what I can control. My goal is to play this next hand the best way possible. And so now I just bring the focus back to something that's very simple. And instead of looking out, you know, outward 100 miles into the future, trying to imagine like all these, these futures that I can't plan for, I'm just looking at what is the very next step that I can take? Like, where is my foot going right now? And where it's going right now, the only thing that I can really focus on, the only thing I can control, the actually only thing that exists or matters is the next hand, the current hand that's going to be dealt. And if I want to win back the fifty, hundred thousand dollars I just lost in the hand before, maybe because I made a mistake, maybe because I got unlucky, the only way I can do it is through this very current next hand. And I think that mindset really helps in take that mindset with you to the real world as well. Like maybe... Um, there's this like insurmountable mountain. It's seemingly insurmountable mountain. Like you, you lose your job or you get fired and you're like, how am I ever going to come back from this, you know, relationship I just ended or whatever it is. But the only way forward is like what you can do this current moment, this next day. And so instead of focusing on, I mean, it's good to have 
be prepared like for long-term planning, but in just being able to focus on something that you could do tangible right now to kind of bring back the control, your, your sense of control to the situation and feel empowered like the action you're taking matters really helps set up that domino effect of, of um, getting motivated again to make good decisions. Um, and then I think when it comes to everyday action, it's about separating myself from my emotions. So I talked before about emotional, logical, and intuitive decisions. So when you're navigating, I think, your daily life, it's really important to focus on making like logical decisions and not emotional ones. And emotion is, is something that is speaks very loudly in your mind at any current time. So like you're lazy, you're tired, you don't feel like exercising, you're craving something, you want to eat a piece of cake, you are kind of like, ah, I don't feel like working, I want to watch Netflix. Like there's, if you listen to the emotions, it's easy to get swept away in this current and not ultimately do what's best for you. So what I like to do is I like to say to my, I like to treat myself like I'm a parent managing a child and that I'm talking to myself in the third person. So I'm creating space between my emotions or my ego and what I know is like my higher self or what is best for me. And I, I talk to myself in the third person and I say, what should Alec do? Or Alec, what is the best decision that you can make right now? And so I get up in the morning and I don't feel like exercising, but I maybe I need a day off, right? So it's not about asking yourself these questions to push yourself to always you know, do the, like the hardest thing. Sometimes the correct answer is taking a day off or eating a piece of pizza because that's the right thing to do because you, you know, you need that balance and that's fine. But I'm always trying to focus on the quality of making the right decision. So I'll say, Alec, what should you do right now? Or what should you do tomorrow? As I'm mapping out my day, you know, the night before, I'll say, what should you do? And then I'll write out the things that I know that I need to do, that I should do, not the things that I might emotionally want to do in the moment. And so this is something that I come back to in real time as I'm making decisions. I was doing this today, for example. I had the choice between um, spending a couple more hours working on this book I'm writing or coming home and uh, doing something else. And so I was kind of confused and I, I felt emotionally connected to one thing. But I asked myself, Alec, what should you do right now? And I realized, you know, staying in the library and focusing on writing was more important, even though I didn't really want to do that emotionally. So I think that really helps to create space and helps me to navigate um, decisions in, 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 a, in a better uh, way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's intriguing. So third person, like a parent to a child. Yeah, you have to do it because sometimes you're just so susceptible, at least for me, like so susceptible to like, today I feel unmotivated or today I feel like doing this or I don't feel like doing that or whatever. But like at the end of the day, you know you're going to feel better if you do the things that you know logically you should do that matter, right? So I know that if I go through the motions of, you know, meditating in the morning and doing my hit cardio and taking a cold shower and like having a healthy breakfast, I know in two hours I'm going to feel great. But emotionally right then before I do all that, I'm looking at these tasks that I'm are on my list and I'm like, I don't want to do any of that. But if I listen to emotion, at the end of the day, I'm going to feel worse. Um... But if I listen to logic, I'm going to feel worse in the short term. Um, but it's about optimizing for what I think is the best uh, long-term process. So that's that's part of the reason why I think that's important. Mm-hmm. And the question is, what should you do? I imagine there's a number of ways you could articulate that, but that's the how you do it. It's like, what should you do? Yeah, or what is the best decision? What is the best decision? What should you do? Yeah, what should you do right uh-huh. now? Like, what is the best decision? And sometimes I just close my eyes and I pose that question to, you know, my subconscious, like I'll just sit, 
sit on the couch and pose it. And, um, and then I'll like think about it for a minute and I'll let the answer sort of like come to me. I'll like listen for the answer um, in a way that's like a little bit more intuitive. Um, or maybe, maybe if it's something that requires a little bit more thought, I'll write down some, some ideas. I'll just write, you know, let like a stream of consciousness and write for 30 seconds or a minute. And usually it's pretty easy to come to the right answer. And you can usually separate out, you know, I don't feel like doing this, but I know this is what I should do type of logic that you can get down on paper, or sometimes you can do it meditatively or whatever. Um, and I feel like that helps come to that conclusion. But I think it's about priming yourself for those questions. Um, is a mm-hmm. good place to start. Uh, and if you're really honest with yourself and, and, and you listen, I think most of the time you'll know what the right answer is. And I think the what should you do, I mean, I guess that's almost like a shorthand or what's the best decision. It's sort of like, it's based on something, you know, in terms of like there are embedded criteria, whether it's your life's purpose or mission or vision or values or kind of long-term goals that matter to you a whole lot. Because that's sort of the first thing that my mind fires back. It's like, Based on what? Under what criteria? You know, toward what end? And so I guess there's some pre-work there associated with having some clarity on that such that your current moment decisions are in congruence with that. Yeah, so I actually, um, in poker, you know, before you make any bets, I always tell my, my clients to think about what you're trying to accomplish before you make a bet. So sometimes people are like, oh, I bet because the other guy checked. You know, like I just bet because I, the action was on me. But it's like, why are you trying to bet? You know, what are you trying to accomplish? And I think in the same vein uh, that it sort of applies to life as well. And I call this, uh, you know, having my, my North Star. And it's really trying to identify like what are the core values in your life that you're trying to optimize for? So like what are the important things that the rest of the decisions that you're making are helping you maximize? Um, so for example, for me, I, I try and maximize my decisions around the values of freedom, excitement, and choices. And so I think freedom is like the main one that I'm trying to optimize for. And so um, I think money is a great tool and it helps, but it helps in terms of achieving more freedom units. So a lot of times I'll perhaps find an opportunity or a situation where I'll be passing up something that is potentially monetarily rewarding because it lowers my freedom. Like it's a big, huge commitment either to a activity or a time or a location or to have to be somewhere at a certain time. And like, even though that could present a monetary reward, it could lower my freedom. But by understanding your priorities, it helps to maximize your aims. So for example, you know, th- that's like on the macro, right? Those are like the big decisions that you make um, structurally in the scope of your life, like what job you're going to take or where you're going to live or um, how much you want to have, uh, how much you want your mortgage to be might affect your ability to travel, which might affect your freedom and like those sorts of things. But I think on a micro level, it also is important as well to have like your 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 other short-term goals or your maybe lesser goals. Like, So for example, when you go to a restaurant and you say, what should I order? If you're in a period of your life where you're, macro goal is to lose 10 pounds, well, that might be the, the way that you decide to optimize those decisions. And so you might decide to make an ordering decision based on that objective. So I think it's about understanding the big picture and then reverse engineering to make sure the decisions you make are mapped towards your ambitions. And then also being aware that like success is not a linear path, right? It's not a straight line to your goal it's like a curved line where there's setbacks and ups and downs. And so the idea of trying to lose 10 pounds might mean 
eating healthy five or six days a week and a couple times having a pizza, even though it's not in a vacuum the best decision to reach your goal of losing 10 pounds. But it's also about being aware that, hey, I'm out with friends on a Friday night and everybody's having a, you know, a, a glass of wine and we're enjoying a nice restaurant. Like I'm going to be okay with not necessarily going the most expedited route to my goals because this is part of life as well. So it's about being able to be intuitive in those moments um, and, and being what I call situationally aware, which is a concept we used often in poker. You know, there's, there's typically rules that you follow where like these hands are the correct hands to play in certain situations, but there's always circumstances where the rules are broken. And I think it's important to, to be aware of where those apply in your life as well. Mm-hmm. I also want to get your take on intuition. To what extent should we trust it? How should we use it? And... How do you think about it? I think about intuition as the like the first part of the decision making process. And so, for example, when you when I play a hand of poker, um, I'm typically looking for intuitive read about the situation. And this is something that's hard to quantify. It doesn't come from my logical mind. It just comes as a feeling right away. And this happens in real life too. Like when you meet someone for the first time, it's hard to logically express whether or not you like them or why. So you're not going to say something like, oh, well, I like him or I'm attracted to him because of his black shirt. It's just about their aura, their essence, their personality, the vibe you get. These are all sort of intuitive things. And this is like the first part of the decision-making process. It's primal, instinctual. Um, And then after that, you use logic or reason to confirm your hypothesis. So you might get to know the person better. You might understand their values and see if their priorities or North Star align with yours. And then you might, you know, be able to confirm or deny your intuitive read. And this is also what I'm doing at the poker table, right? Like if I have an intuition that my opponent is bluffing, then I'll analyze their betting patterns and I'll work my way through the hand to see if their betting patterns confirm this idea that it's likely that they are bluffing. And in fact, when, you know, my intuition and logic are pointing to the same conclusion, that's when I feel like I make my best decisions when both of those things are in harmony. You know, it's like a a marriage of both of those things to make a a good decision. Um, But lastly, on that subject, I typically find that I don't always have intuitive reads. So I don't want to overemphasize making intuitive decisions or that you should be like just sort of meditating your way to make a decision in every facet of your life. Um, Because most of the time, I don't have intuitive reads. Like I'm watching my opponents, I'm looking for betting patterns or what we call tells, meaning physical actions that allow someone to deduce the strength of your opponent's hand. But I don't get that read every hand, right? So most of the time, I'm making logical decisions. I'm analyzing pros and cons. I'm weighing probabilities. I'm I'm using logic and math and those sorts of things to make my decisions probably 90% of the time. But... But the 10% of the time where I do have a strong instinctual read about a situation, a person, a business deal, a relationship, it's typically right. And it's the situations in which I override my intuition with logic that I end up paying the price. So for example, at the poker table, when I really get the gut feeling that my my opponent has a very strong hand, I know the right decision is to fold, but I can't quite explain why logically. Then I start letting my conscious mind override my intuition and talk myself into calling because I try and use logic to kind of like override 
my intuition. I say, well, I can't fold here because of this or uh, blah, blah, blah. And then I call and he usually has it. And I feel like this is true in life as well. Like when you have a strong feeling like, you know, this guy is bad news or I can't trust this person or I shouldn't go into business with them or I can't take on this project or this uh, job isn't right for me or something about this isn't right. That is usually something to listen to. And I feel like it's the situations where you kind of try to override that by talking yourself into something that you, you intuitively know is wrong <laughs> that, uh, that we end up paying the price. So that's a little bit about my relationship with, with those things in, in decision-making on and off the felt. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes to, well, you mentioned the tells, I'm intrigued. Let's talk for a bit about reading people. To what extent can it be done? Are there any kind of telltale signs that you think are pretty reliable? In poker, yeah, but unfortunately, they don't necessarily directly apply to decisions off the felt. So for example, in poker, a common tell is your opponent's hands are shaking when they're betting. Because they have happy feet. Yeah, or they have. that's indicative of a strong hand. It's a release mm-hmm. of tension. They usually have a very good hand. Um, inversely, when they call a bet very quickly, they act extremely fast. They usually have a weak hand. They're trying to intimidate you by acting quickly, by saying or conveying the the message that, hey, look, I'm going to call you right away. I have something when in fact they don't. Um, But I typically don't, like those specific actions don't quite translate to the real world. It's not like if someone shakes their hand, their hands shake, they're lying to you or something like that. This doesn't work like that. But what I will say is that being forced to interpret body language or you know basically in, infer people's true intentions without words has helped me off the felt as well and i think it's a good skill set to practice because in poker you're basically communicating with people that don't speak your language it's sort of like doing that because people aren't really talking to you and even if they are the words that you can't trust that the words they're saying are indicative of their hand strength obviously right they're like they're not obliged to say hey i have a good hand when they have a good hand nobody's going to do that so you can't really listen i mean you can listen but you can't really trust that what they're saying or that the information they're conveying you have to read into it and i think that's a good skill set as well to help get to truths within relationships and uh, avoid potentially problematic situations when you're able to uh, read people or situations a little bit better. Um, Because people aren't always conveying things accurately, sometimes for malicious reasons, other times just for, uh, you know, protection. They don't want to like say something to offend you or like to get involved in a hard conversation or it's tough for people to express their true feelings. So being able to read people is like a muscle, I think, that you can exercise. And poker helps you do that. Mm-hmm. And so then with the exercising of it, what are the activities or practices that one does to exercise it? So there's not like a specific like body language thing that I think correlates. But I think it's just about like being more present and like aware of the subtleties when talking to someone and really trying to infer how, if what they're saying is representative of how they're actually feeling and kind of like just being aware of this process and then looking back on it and analyzing it. Um, I don't have like a great practice for doing this in person. Um, but I think, yeah, in so far that you can try, I think it's a useful practice to do. I wish I had like a more 
a little bit more of a tangible thing here to do for someone looking to do that off the felt? Well, it sounds like simply observing and making a note to ask yourself internally, is there congruence and consistency here between what they're saying verbally and what I'm picking up elsewhere? And then just sort of make a note of that and look at it later can be handy as opposed to just sort of letting it you know, flow right by in terms of you're not even kind of paying attention to those nonverbals in the first place. Yeah. And like just kind of starting to observe for it and just being conscious of it and then watching for reactions. And I mean, your intuition is usually right. Like you can tell if someone's giving you a false compliment or if someone like genuinely like is interested in something you're saying, right? Like, like we're doing this all the time, whether we're aware of it or not, right? Like if you are talking to someone and their kind of eyes are wandering and they're looking disinterested, I mean, it's hard to quantify exactly what the tells are for them not being interested in what you're saying, but you can typically tell if like you're boring someone during a conversation and then you might change the subject, but you might just do this subconsciously without even thinking about it. But I think going into the conversation conscious of it and saying, okay, what was it that made that person made me realize that that person wasn't interested in what I was saying? And why did I just change my subject of conversation there? Or I could tell that person wanted to say something. Why was that? And why did I pause and let him talk or whatever it is? So I think just going into it with a sense of curiosity, I would say is probably the best word, um, allows you to kind of explore this a little bit more. And I think it's it, people will find that it's it's a fun game to play, um, and it's also quite a useful skill. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, now tell me, Alec, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? No, this is awesome. This is great. If you need some help making optimal hiring decisions, check out our sponsor, ZipRecruiter. Cafe Altura COO Dylan Miskowitz needed to hire a director of coffee for his organic coffee company, but... He was having trouble finding qualified applicants. So he switched on over to ZipRecruiter. ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. Instead, it finds them for you. Its technology identifies people with the right experience and then invites them to apply to your job. Thusly, you get qualified candidates fast. Dylan posted his job on ZipRecruiter and said he was impressed by just how quickly he had great candidates apply. He also used ZipRecruiter's candidate rating feature to filter his applicants so he could focus on the most relevant ones. And that is how Dylan, in fact, found his new director of coffee in just a few days. With results like that, it's no wonder four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. You can see why ZipRecruiter is effective for businesses of all sizes. Try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash HTBA. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash HTBA. One more time, it's ZipRecruiter.com slash HTBA, as in how to be awesome. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. All right, cool. Well, now could you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. I think that's a great quote. All right, cool. And how about a favorite book? I think a book that had a big impact on my life, I guess you have to be at the right place for it, is Happier by Tal Ben-Shahar. So he's a Mm -hmm. professor at Harvard and I think he's economics, something unrelated completely to this subject. And he taught a course on happiness and it became the most popular course at Harvard. And then he wrote a book about his findings. He has a subsequent book called Perfect as well about how perfectionism is a unattainable thing that is a quest that leads people to be unhappy. But um, Happier was really good. And I actually went through it and there's like these exercises in the book. And I like was at a point where I was in the mood to kind of like do them and 
be tangible with it. And I found um, that was a great, a great book. All right, cool. And tell me, how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job? Yeah, so I would say Trello as a good tool. But since I feel like other people might have already said that, I will say SaneBox. Oh, yeah. To filter email on Gmail is incredible. So it allows you to put email in a lot of different folders, depending on who sends it and set reminders. Messages go to your inbox at different times. It's incredible. It's like completely organizes your email. And one more I would say would be a some sort of meditation app. And I like Waking Up by Sam Harris. And I think that's a great tool as well. Mm-hmm. All right. And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research? I guess I've been more interested in in meditation recently. And I think looking at some of the effects of that it has like long-term meditators and how it changes certain aspects of the brain and um, improves memory and like reduces stress and makes people like potentially live longer. Uh, I think it, that was pretty profound and insightful. And have you found that to be your experience as you embarked upon the meditation? So I've, okay, I'm nowhere near like at the level, like, you know, at some super advanced level. I've been doing it for four years. And I would say the first year I averaged like 10 minutes a day and 20 minutes a day and then 30 minutes a day. So that's kind of been where I'm at. But it's one of those things that you really, I feel like, at least for me, had to get through this initiation phase. And I feel like a lot of people probably would be inclined to quit before that point. And so I think if it's something you're going to start, it would be to commit to doing like at least 30 days to two months and do like 20 minutes a day every single day. And then don't start unless you can commit to that. Um, because then it's it's only then when you start to kind of realize like, oh, there's something here. I'm not just sitting and thinking randomly about nothing or bored. But I have noticed like there is this sort of tipping point where things start to click and then it becomes incredibly interesting and insightful and um, quite productive. Profound, I think. So, well, yeah, I, I was, I'm curious with the word productive there. If you think about all the minutes you've spent engaged in meditation as compared to the benefits it's yielded, would you say that those minutes have paid for themselves or what kind of ROI have they delivered? Good question. Yeah. And I, I know it seems counterintuitive. And I thought this in the beginning as well that typically people are short on time. Of course, I don't have time to meditate. I could be doing something more productive. But I think what meditation really helps you with is focus. And to do anything great, you have to be really, really focused. And so I think it helps me get clarity in a lot of things and get re-energized and really focused on what's important. And so, for example, let's say I'm working all day and it's like 2 p.m. and I'm kind of tired. I can sit for five to 10 minutes, close my eyes and just meditate and let my mind unwind. And all the thoughts of my day will like kind of come out from my subconscious to like, I could kind of watch my thoughts go by. And sometimes in that moment, like letting my thoughts unwind, I will get great ideas and ideas will come to me that, you know, I couldn't think about during the course of my day because I was actively engaged in all these activities. So then I'll 
you know, I'll, sometimes I'll stop my meditation and write them down, <laughs> of course, on Trello. Or um, otherwise, uh, you know, after my mind will just kind of unwind and the noise of my mind will unwind. And then I could sit down after that and focus for another two hours. So it's actually like taking, you know, a half a step back to take four steps forward. Whereas if I just tried to plug along from two, you know, at two o'clock, I tried to take a break and I did something else during that break. Even if that break was longer, like a 30 minute break or an hour break. But during that break, the state of my mind was engaged still, even if it was not engaged necessarily like learning something, but even just like, you know, you're talking to talking to people or you're doing activities and, and your mind is wandering and thinking while you're involved in the physical world and doing all these activities. I don't feel like I, I rest as much, but if I take 10 minutes, like I'm just charged for another couple hours. So I feel like it's this like superpower almost um, if you get to a little bit of a proficiency with it, where it, it just like unlocks this, uh, this potential that I that I that I that I have to to uh, be more focused in the activities that I'm doing. You also learn a lot about yourself. Like I think there's a great video by Jay Shetty, um, who was a um, meditation like monk at one point, and then he's come back to the the business world and is a speaker. Um, like meditation made me a bad person, and it, it's kind of an interesting title um, because it really forces you to look at some aspects of yourself that you might not have been aware of before. And at least for me, I'm realizing like, wow, I'm, you know, I typically have these thoughts and uh, I typically behave this way. And like, these are things that I'd like to change or improve. Um, or these are some of my strengths and I wasn't aware of that. So all these things help you be, you know, help you win more in the long term. however you want to look at that, you know, whether it's productivity or um, focus or uh, whatever it is. So I think it's a net positive um, when you add up the minutes and then you look at the increase in, in productivity and, or, or if you measure with another metric like stress or happiness or gratitude or connectivity with other people, all those things are, are, are greatly advanced. So yeah, it's been awesome. All right. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Well, I do have a YouTube with, there's like five or 600 videos on poker and like ideas and lessons from poker that apply to life and business as well. You can look up Conscious Poker or just Alec Torelli and you'll find it. Otherwise, ConsciousPoker.com if you want to learn poker strategy and get better at the game. But if you um, are more interested in the lifestyle side of things, I keep a blog at AlecTorelli.com with uh, more of my personal thoughts and content as well. So I'm also very active on social media at Alec Torelli, Instagram, Twitter, um, come say hi and shoot me a DM or send me a message or leave me a comment. Um, I do read them all and let me know you found me on here and I'd love to say hey. Mm -hmm. And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs? Just to always try and work on yourself. And even if that means, you know, and looking at things that are sort of hard or uncomfortable or potentially receiving uh, painful um, feedback from people that are close to you or loved ones to reframe that as an opportunity for growth, to look at the feedback that's coming or potentially even the things that you label as negative as opportunities for growth and challenges to get better, whether that's a setback or a demotion or getting fired or breakup or whatever it is, um, kind of instead of looking at it like, uh, you know, this happened to me, but perhaps this happened for me and how can I learn from this experience or grow from this experience or get better from this experience? And uh, what could I have done differently? And that's one of the questions that I always ask myself in poker that's really helped me off the felt is like, even if I win a hand, 
Or even if things go well, I'm always asking like, what could I have done differently? How could I have played this hand better? What decisions could I have made that led to a better result? And I think focusing on that process and um, really looking to improve in every hand you play is uh, is a good framework that I think will help on and off the felt. So I hope I, I hope that uh, that's a good challenge. All right, Alex, thanks so much for sharing the good word and good luck to you. Thank you, Pete. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. I really got a kick out of Alex's take there on talking to yourself in the third person like you are a parent to a toddler, asking the question, what's the best choice for Alec to make right now? And I just like that so much because it's sort of patronizing, but it's also sort of necessary in terms of, boy, I am often so unruly in terms of, no, no, I'm like a toddler. That's not what I want. I want this now. I want pizza now. (laughs) Is pizza the best choice for Pete right now? And so I, I think it's handy to really kind of meet yourself where you're at in that way, such that you're able to negotiate and call yourself up to a higher place and make decisions that are really going to support you and be in alignment with where you want to go more longer term and feel proud of yourself when you're on the other side of it, looking back. So great stuff from Alec. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash F514. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. If you do, you'll be sure to hear our very next guest. It's Susan Fowler. She spent decades researching motivation and she's got a few tips to help you kick yours into high gear. Hope you catch you there and peace. Thanks for listening. To get the most out of the show, we recommend two key things. First, check out the extra resources at awesomeatyourjob.com. You can find this episode's transcript and links as well as the perfect episode for your situation. You can search the full text transcripts of hundreds of episodes or explore episodes tagged by topic and competency covered. Second, subscribe to the podcast and get future episodes automatically. You can subscribe by telling Siri and several other smartphones and speakers, subscribe to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast or by tapping subscribe in your podcast player of choice. If you'd like some extra help figuring out podcasts and how subscriptions work, visit awesomeatyourjob.com slash subscribe for guidance. Hope to catch you on the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job.